This is KMUW Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT Democracy on Tap is a community conversation of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on February 12th at Roxy's downtown on the subject of education funding. Welcome, you guys. Welcome to Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. We're happy to see you all here tonight, um, and we should have a really, a really great discussion here for you as well, and, and we welcome your questions. Um, first, I'd like to thank the partners that make this event possible. Uh, firstly, to Roxy's for the venue and the wonderful appetizer buffet. Let's have a round of applause. Also to the Wichita Public Library for providing a further resource uh, reading list each month for our events. Those are really interesting. If you haven't checked those out, um, check those out on our little info table here. Um, and also a big thank you to Stoutheart Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services. They are sponsoring the first three months of Engage ICT um, this year, which is a great benefit to us. And let's have a round of applause for them as well. Uh, the issue of education funding affects all of us, whether or not we have children in public schools. So tonight, education funding and how those impacts are reaching us. On our panel, we have Lieutenant Governor of Kansas, Lynn Rogers. Can't. Kansas News Service reporter Celia Yopis Jepson. Thank you for being here, Celia. Uh, Wichita Public Schools Chief Financial Officer Susan Willis. And Valley Center Public Schools Superintendent Corey Gibson. So we'll go ahead and jump in here with our discussion. As you think of questions, um, please fill out the question slips on your table, and Cache will come around and pick those up for you, and we'll get as many of your questions answered as we can. So let's dive in here, you guys, um, and tell us what kind of brought us to our current position in education funding. To first give us some context, tell the story of how funding has been cut in Kansas, did it begin with the economic recession, and how did it de uh, evolve during the Brownback administration? Celia, do you want to kick us off? Um, sure. Okay. Sorry, this is a strange experience because the lights are very bright and I can't really see you, but I guess in radio I can't see you either, to be honest. So, um, but uh, I know I could use a pair of those sunglasses. Okay, so I think probably we're best to back up a little before the recession even um, to a different school finance lawsuit <laughs> that was similar to the one that we have now. But if we look back to the, the 2000s and the mid-2000s, that's about when Kansas was um, resolving a, oh, I think in the end it turned it out to be a seven-year-long school finance lawsuit. And Kansas, the, the courts signed off on, um, in the end, I think it was more than $700 million in increases for schools. And a lot of that was about looking at um, what really do schools need to help their students succeed. So it wasn't, I mean, I mentioned that it may sound kind of obvious, but that's actually a little different from how previous school finance lawsuits worked that were more like looking at um, comparing like richer schools and poorer schools and who has, you know, 
who, you know, who has equal resources or what does equal resources even mean? But this lawsuit back in the 2000s was also looking at things like how much money do you need to give a child an equal education, a, a good education, say if that child is learning English as a second language or um, is in special education. And uh, the courts decided that Kansas was underfunding its schools and there was a resolution in the end and a plan to phase in funding over multiple years, so the court signed off on that, kind of let go, and the stair-step increases started, <laughs> and then the recession hit, and um, Sibelius and her successor, um, uh, Parkinson, cut a whole lot of funding. So after that, of course, Governor Brownback took office. Um, some in the education community were kind of hopeful, like, okay, so <laughs> the economy is gonna recover now, and we're gonna get back to that funding plan that the courts had signed off on. And of course, the governor um, uh, pursued uh, tax cuts. Um, so, so that didn't go the way that some people had hoped. Um, and of course, in the meantime, we got a new school finance lawsuit in 2010 uh, because of the cuts that happened in the recession. So we're dealing with now nine years of that lawsuit that is really about understanding that the resolution from this previous lawsuit never happened in full. Um, and if, yeah, if I get kind of lost in the weeds or whatever, you can just pull me out of them. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to explore a little bit more about the, the lawsuits and, and how that works. How, you know, that we are, you know, who is it that's deciding that, you know, this amount of money is the right amount of money to educate children? The Supreme Court is, Lynn, can you kind of elaborate on how that works for people? Uh, well, the... Uh, the court is is involved in that. Uh, you know, it originally started with local school districts. The Montoy case uh, from the mid '90s was actually several rural uh, uh, poor districts. Uh, the uh, Gannon case, which is current, started with four other districts, uh, including Wichita. The uh, we did take those to court. Uh, the Supreme Court didn't, in this case, uh, say how, how much needed to be into the the funding formula which again is un unlike in the Montoy where they actually did decide a dollar amount. Mm. Um, in Gannon, uh, they just said it, it is not meeting adequacy, it's not meeting equity, and they would kick it back to the legislature. So the legislature always had the opportunity to put the amount of money in that they so cho chose. However, over the nine years, uh, they did a lot of other stunts at the same time. You know, they did the, the block grants, which uh, froze all of our funding for two years at a lower rate than what we were, the school districts were getting originally. And then um, many times they didn't necessarily believe what the court said, and so they challenged them on that. And uh, that's where the last study from Texas came out that showed we were almost $2 billion, uh, below where we need to be uh, for funding uh, reasons. So, uh, so I think there's some misconceptions in the sense that the courts are deciding these things. They're, they're deciding whether it meets constitutional adequacy and constitutional equity, um, and then the legislature really has had the authority to determine how much that is. Uh, the courts do then rule on that, decide if that's the right thing or not, uh, and that's where we're currently waiting for their final, uh, they're saying that they're still short the uh, cost of living, increase, and so that's where we're at right now, uh, what we're hoping to address in Senate Bill 44. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong on this, but around 50% of the state's overall budget goes to K through 12 education, um, which some would argue is 
pretty high, um, but what was the logic for reduction of education funding? Is education just kind of the biggest target out there, or did we just not have enough money to balance the budget as a result of, for example, the Brownback tax cuts? Susan? So, so I think um, you could look at that 50% is 50% of the, the state's general fund, not its overall budget. Uh, and if historically, it's actually been that level, so this isn't really anything new for Kansas school districts to um, be that percent of the districts of the state's general fund. Um, as certainly the bellwether event uh, in the past 10 years of the uh, recession, certainly the state was faced with no way to really go in and apply a, a higher tax rate because we were in such a decline. Mm. However, once that bottomed out, then certainly those tax cuts came in and made everything much more complicated. Do you have any idea if uh, that roughly 50%, is that uh, a national norm as well? I think it will, would depend state by state on how funding is determined. Like we have the three-legged stool. We do a sales tax, we do an income tax, and we have a property tax. So those three legs work very well when all three legs are somewhat balanced to make sure that, that all the funding um, for programs is supported. And if I could add to that, uh, you know, for instance, Nebraska, much of their funding is, is on a local basis, um, and it does depend on how well to do that district is in terms of how well they fund their schools. And that's similar to, to the Kansas plan back in the 90s, which was the very first lawsuit, well, no, I shouldn't say the first lawsuit, the first lawsuit I remember, at least, uh, in 92. And uh, that one was where much of that, uh, you know, at that time, I think Wichita's mill levy was 90 mills. After the 92, uh, Re, uh, reorganization of, of the school finance formula, I think our mill levy dropped to 30 mills. And it was very much uh, equalized throughout the state. So if you were in Valley Center, if you were in Wichita, if you were in Pittsburgh, uh, there was a very similar local contribution um, and much more was on the state. So again, you weren't penalized. Uh, your child wasn't penalized with a poor education just because of the zip code that they were in. I'd like to add one other thing about this. I think that's important to keep in mind um, is as we look, we think a lot about, quote, Brownback's tax cuts. That's the conversation that's happened in recent years. However, one thing to keep in mind, if you look back at the testimony presented uh, in this last lawsuit, we talked about the fact that there was a series of tax cuts. You may or may not remember. I don't remember all of them. Going starting about 1995. And so there was a small series and there were chunks and maybe there were small pieces here and there but I was just looking back at the testimony from 95 to 2005, there was approximately 40 tax cut bills in Kansas alone. And then we went from 2005 to 2008, in that time frame there was 18 additional. And so if you were to take the revenue expected with all of those and quote the Brownback tax cuts, we'd had $1.2 billion more in the coffer today for this year's expenses. So it's not just, it's easy to remember the most recent, obviously because the one we, we think about, but there was a series leading up to that point uh, that reduced uh, the actual cost, or excuse me, the, the possibility to fund the cost to educate. Do you want to add? Uh, no, no. So Governor Kelly ran on education funding, but uh, she now has to convince the Kansas legislature that it's necessary, uh, and she hasn't been having a, a very easy time of that. Um, are there economic implications for what increased education funding could mean for Kansas? Well, I think one of the things that Governor Kelly said in the campaign, and, and, and I said it as well, um, is that a strong local education uh, 
community is our best economic tool for economic growth. Uh, travel anywhere in the country, you know, when people want a job or, or want to bring jobs to, to an area, they want a skilled workforce. And so if we have uh, educated uh, students, which then become educated adults, uh, we will have that kind of workforce. So it is a huge economic driver for us in that regard. Um, I think some of the funding that we have uh, recreated since the overturn of the Brownback tax plan, um, the, the 550 or 35 million that's been going in are supposed to go over the next five years, that is allowing school districts to reinvest uh, in some key positions, uh, not just pay raises, but also some key positions. Because we, most school districts cut a lot of staff uh, through those last five years, basically just tried to keep the doors open. Um, so I think that has given them some hope to, to rebuild. Um, you know, we just could not keep going at the, at the pace that we were in, in terms of trying to accomplish what we were being required to accomplish as well. So, so I think that will make a big difference. Oh, and let me ask one other, we'll add one other thing. I think the other thing too is if we can resolve uh, this school finance, and that's one of the things that Governor Kelly asked the legislature to deal with right away, and they, they finally have started talking about it, and this is day 18 or 19, um, is that we have many, many other issues that we need to address, including education issues, you know, in terms of creating respect for teachers, uh, you know, encouraging teachers to stay in the state, uh, but, you know, we have the corrections department, we have uh, DCF, we have a lot of other things we need the legislature to deal with, and so if we can get rid of uh, this, this, this litigation, we can then move on to other issues that are really vital for long-term viability for the state. Celia, did you want to add to that? Um, yeah, no, I was just thinking you were asking about like the relationship, I think, between spending and the economic returns, and I mean, it's worth, it's worth pointing out that, so on the one hand, we know that people who um, get a good kid, good education and and go beyond high school and you know who we help get to college and beyond they earn significantly more like there's I wish I had the numbers in front of me right now um, somewhere out there there's a cam UW reporter who probably has them memorized um, <laughs> but uh, yes there's there's significant returns on getting more education um, but at the same time, so no one has, there's not like a researcher out there who's figured out the magic number of how much money therefore, you know, we need to be spending on education per student and then, and then we get, you know, those returns. Like if there were, it would make things maybe a lot easier, but no one has like figured out the ultimate solution that the entire U.S. can use. Um, oh, did you want to add? Well, I was just going to make a comment too. We, we certainly uh, getting that, that, workforce is important, but say Wichita Public Schools, our budget is almost $740 million. We have a huge economic footprint in our community. Our people work here, they live here, they purchase things here. So not only are we producing the future workforce, but our people spend in our community. Um, I think that's important to note. So um, an argument that I've heard kind of on the other side is that people who think we don't need to give more money to education say um, that it would it would hurt economic growth and cause businesses perhaps not to come to Kansas. You know, we could be spending money that way instead. Um, but if you have children, the quality of education in the state is an influencer of where you want to move. Um, so how do we balance these two concerns? Yeah, I think one of the things that <clears throat> I think about is it's easy to say education's an expense, but it's truly an investment, not only in the child, but in our state. 
And so I was fortunate enough uh, a couple years back to go through Leadership Kansas, and, and Kansas Chamber is one of those sponsors. And we went out and visited all kinds of sites, from Garden City up to Kansas City, where business leaders were talking about what they need in order to not only stay in Kansas, but grow their company in Kansas. And number one, they talked about a quality workforce that is well-educated and prepared to come work. And the second thing they talked about is just stable taxes. They didn't necessarily always say, hey, you know, I want taxes reduced, or hey, this needs to happen. They actually had conversations about just tell me the playing field, and, and we don't like this back and forth, because that's really hard to prepare for as a business. So Kelly proposed on the campaign trail to fully fund schools, um, and the Supreme Court uh, is taking part in that, deciding what fully funded means. Um, what else is involved in that decision? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Um, you know, the courts basically ruled that uh, the legislature did a good job with the funding formula, uh, but they forgot about the cost of living uh, for about a six-year period of time. And um, so our bill basically uh, meets that criteria that, you know, we'd add about $92 million, um, over the next few years to take care of that. That's really uh, all that that would require. Um, the uh, attorney general has come out and said if the courts or if the legislature decides to not monkey around with anything other than that, that's all they do, they don't, he does not need the decision until March 15th. And so then he can do the work that he needs to do to go back to the Supreme Court and defend what the legislature uh, is doing. Uh, he has told them that if they want to change the formula in some way, and there is some talk about doing that, um, I don't know why, because it would, would basically get us off of both e equity and, and uh, adequacy, um, or very potentially could. He would like that done by March 1st, because he's got to take more time to defend that action. Um, you know, the courts uh, have been pretty clear. The state's lost 11 out of the last 11 times, maybe 12 out of the last 12. I, I, I lose count. Um, but uh, we need to, you know, resolve this and, and get it done and, and move forward. Um, we have that in our budget. We have a, a we pre presented a, a balanced budget with a 9.1% ending balance. Of course, that's getting spent down very quickly. And I think the reason for that is so that we don't have money to fund schools at the end of the, the uh, legislative session. At least that's what I'm afraid it could be. Um, but uh, that's really all it would take, is just passing uh, Senate Bill 44, get that to the courts to see if they will approve it, and then uh, we can finish the rest of the legislative action and, and finish the budget and go home. Um, I, th I think it's worth um, also adding a little bit. So I don't know if we, cl if we clarified that, and maybe everyone knows, but um, that what we're looking at adding, you know, what they're debating about adding this year is, of course, on top of another multi-year funding plan similar to what we saw in the 2000s, but this one will be drawn out to five years, and the legislature signed off on that last year. So the reason I mention that is because um, whatever the court, whatever happens now, and then whatever the court decides, a big part of the decision is going to be, is the court going to keep kind of monitoring this this time? and and seeing whether the state follows through with, with what the court signed off on. Um, and I think that the plaintiffs this time very much would like the court to kind of stay and be the, the, the monitor to see if this goes through. And the state um, will ask for, you know, or based on past experience, I would guess, you know, that they would, they would say, hey, we've got this. <laughs> you, can, you can leave us alone. But um, so, that, so that'll be another big thing to look for. 
What would determine whether or not that happens? Oh, the the, the court can they decide. But oh, I mean, okay. they didn't they didn't keep that type of long you know long term um, authority over the Montoy case, that previous case. But I would say it's safe to say, based on reading their rulings, that they're a little annoyed <laughs> that they're um, deciding this all again. And so maybe this time they're going to um, follow this long term. Yeah, I think going back to last week's testimony over Senate Bill 44, which is basically the proposal that the state board and the governors put forth, the, the plaintiffs actually talked about the fact that they would sign off. In other words, the court wouldn't even have to rule. They would sign off if you comply with this measure as long as the courts continue the jurisdiction to see it through. Um, because what we don't want to happen is a replay of the last time and we get to the point where uh, we get to the level of expectation for constitutionality of adequate and adequate equitable and adequate funding, and then the court says, you're good, legislators, nice job, and then next year, there it drops uh, for a variety of factors. So I think we just need some kind of confirmation that they'll follow through for the next several years seeing that through. And I think the value of having a multi-year stable financial plan cannot be understated so that school districts can plan more than a year at a time. Uh, you know, it, it's not fiscally prudent to look at just the, the year in front of you and not look a year ahead of that or two years ahead of that or five years ahead of that. And not having that stability over the course of time has really worked to the detriment of districts. Well, so, and I think one of the things to remember as to why we're here today with the Gannon case um, is we have to take ourselves back to 2008. Uh, we remember the economic downturn uh, at that time. Um, and we did have our budgets cut considerably at that point in time, but some of those funds were backfilled by stimulus funds from the federal government. So we didn't uh, endure or hit those uh, losses as much until 2010. Um, and in 2008, 2009, when those cuts were made, the legislature uh, was very clear in their promise that they would bring those funds back and, and finish the Montoy uh, investment on that third year. Um, you know, I, I still have press clippings of that from, from that period of time, because I remember it being on the Wichita School Board, um, and then it never happened. And then it just continued to get worse and, and worse and worse. So, so I think we have to remember, that's one of the reasons why I think the plaintiffs are saying they want the courts to, to maintain it. Um, and even the, the nine years of this case, you know, I think in many times, the, the courts uh, have, have been very patient uh, with some of the, the gamesmanship that's been going on in the legislature that, that they have said, we need to do, you need to do what you say you're gonna do and we'll make sure that you do. So, so I, I see them continuing to hold on to that. And that could be a sore point with the legislature, but they need to realize there is a track record on both sides, not just the courts, but also on the legislative side. Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget, I was in district office, I was in Pittsburgh, Kansas, as assistant superintendent this time frame, and the first round of cuts came around and it was $33 off of the base. And we went into crisis mode. We thought the world was coming to an end. The year later is almost $380 off of the base. And so that's when it really started hitting like, oh my goodness, we are gonna have to cut staff. Obviously no one's getting a raise and we're gonna have to reduce some other expenditures in other ways. But I just remember thinking back now, like $33, huh? But had we known we were able to see the future uh, and all the challenges we'd face up until recently. The, the cuts obviously are, keep me up at night, but even worse than that are the what ifs. What if we had had that, the, that funding and what could we have done with that money over the course of the last eight years? What programs might we have put in place? I mean, just in the last two years where we have been able to put some funds back in, we've had great success with certain programs. 
uh, when we opened our Town East Learning Center, which we had cut uh, a few years back, we already have 38 graduates in the first five months of operation. I mean, these are success stories that, but for cuts, we could have been making this kind of progress. Um, on Wednesday, proponents of the governor's school funding plan testified in the State House. And to your point, Susan, about having some ability to plan out ahead, um, we have a clip here of Goddard Superintendent Justin Henry urging lawmakers to sign off on Governor Kelly's plan to add about $100 million to school funding next year. Um, and he's recalling when the Great Recession hit and the Kansas State Department of Education let all the school districts know that they would likely be losing a lot of funding. Um, the state's been, of course, locked in that school funding battle ever since. Uh, let's listen to that clip. And we can talk all day about teacher quality, but if we can't plan on how many teachers we're even going to staff, it hurts, and you just don't find them in July. The other part of it is the equity piece that no one's talking about. If we can plan, and it's predictable, maybe you do not become as dependent on your LOB. If you're not as dependent on your LOB, what happens to your property taxes? You're going to see a decline. Celia, can you uh, share a little bit more about the point that he's making and the broader context of that? Yeah, so um, the first part he was talking about is uh, the hiring teachers. And um, I'm sure uh, people know that Kansas I don't want to say Kansas as a whole, but certain parts of Kansas in particular uh, especially have a teacher shortage. So it may vary district to district, um, but I know, having talked to superintendents and principals over the years, they get very frustrated when they don't know like, well in advance um, who they're going to be able to hire because the, the best job candidates go fast. So they want to be able to snap them up fast, especially things like special education teachers who are, you know, I mean, Wichita has a, constant shortage of special education teachers, right? And um, so he, so he, you know, he's, he's clearly, he's talking about that. Um, the other piece is um, the complex, uh, you know, relationship between school funding and um, property taxes. Um, I say complex because there's all sorts of equalization pieces involved, but um, I think what he's saying there is that if he could better plan and if he got um, the amount of state funding that he thinks is appropriate, then his t local taxpayers would get a, t a, a break on their property bill, on their property tax bill. Well, I think teacher shortage is a, is a major issue that what one of the, the uh, casualties of this funding battle um, and the whole education discussion has been a disrespect for teachers. And so many people that would normally go into teaching are no longer doing that. Um, you know, if you look in the past, uh, the ACT scores of teachers, of, of students going into the teaching college are actually higher than the ACT scores of, of people going into engineering college. Um, so we have some, have had some of the best and brightest going into the teaching field. Uh, but we don't have a lot of people doing that. Our teaching colleges are, are being emptied out. Uh, I believe last year, or at least the last year I had numbers, uh, Kansas, we graduated four physics teachers. And four for the whole state of all of our, our campuses. Uh, three of them went to private industry, not into education. So, um, you know, those are serious issues, particularly if we want uh, to recruit, you know, highly skilled you know, engineers and, and mathematicians and folks for, for our business and STEM uh, careers. Um, schools have to have consistency on, on educators so that they can provide the consistency for business and employees. Uh, 
I just really, I just want to really quickly interject. Um, uh, the teacher shortage um, issue, or the, the the issue of fewer and fewer people going into um, ma majoring in teaching, is not just a Kansas thing. I, um, it is a national thing, and I, I rechecked the figures last night. I mean, we're we're seeing issues with um, people choosing not to go into education nationwide. Yeah, and I, I think I was just going to jump on that actually, because I believe that if you look back about 20 years ago, we knew that they may come. We thought it'd be a rainstorm. And then you compound it with some other factors, such as you know dropping uh, teacher pay, et cetera, in Kansas. Um, we have now turned into a hurricane. And so I just talked to a, a group the other day uh, of principals saying, what does the teacher candidate pool look like this year? Because of course we have openings in Valley, as other people do. And for the same position, we're about 50%. And we're in a prime location, proximity to Wichita, close to Wichita State, close to Emporia State. We're in a prime location. We're not in Hugoton, Ulysses, where it's harder to attract those, those folks. Um, and there's about 50% of the number of applicants we saw three years ago. And so what we're hearing is that the number of graduates that will come out of our colleges this year in Kansas into education will be far less than the number of people that will submit their, their retirement or resignation from education this year. So we're, we're, we're into a, a little bit of a challenge here, a hurricane, so to speak. Um, however, the good news is, is, as I have talked to the regents, and they have shared that they are seeing a, start, uh, a little bit of an uptick in their freshman, sophomore coming in to going to education, but still will not be enough. And that solution is three to four years away. So we're going to be facing this problem for several years to come. I don't think anyone who's in education ever thought they would have trouble placing an elementary teacher, and we are fighting over elementary teachers, um, basically stealing from each other and trying to um, you know, keep our own uh, classrooms full, uh, and it becomes just a, a just a, a tremendous struggle that I don't think anyone anticipated at this level of, of a problem. Yeah, we try to advertise about a week or two before two five nine <laughs> begins advertising. So, uh, one I know this is a bit of a side, like us, you know, we're going on a sidetrack about the um, teacher shortage, but you know, you talked about um, how long it will take to graduate more teachers, and that, you know, obviously, yes, that's certainly true. But researchers have also pointed out this other issue that we have, and that there are a lot of people with teaching licenses who aren't teaching, and the other option would be to keep them in teaching or pull them back, and so there's a lot of concern that there are burnout issues and, and other issues involved in addition to the pipeline issue we're dealing with. I think burnout is, is, is definitely an issue. I do think the compensation level for teachers continues to, to be an issue that we are attempting to address. That's why the funding is so important. We've, uh, we've made pretty good progress over the past two years. Our starting teacher salary is up over 7%, and we have started to see some return on that. Our turnover rate is down uh, a percent and a half, which for us is, is, is good, especially when you exclude the, the retirements. So we're, we're making progress. We just need to make more progress. Um, I guess I wanted to ask Susan and Corey, uh, people don't realize how much of your budget is made up of personnel expense. What's the percentage of, of your budgets? So in Wichita, it's 73% are people costs. Yeah, we're about 75, so that's about the same line. It's a very labor-intensive business, uh, and we have to remember that when we're looking at budgets. So. Um, I have an audience question here, uh, someone who wonders, why does a state with about 3 million people need 300 plus school districts? Isn't that a very high ratio per capita? So I, I, I just want to start by um, getting the figure. So it's 286 right now um, because there has been further consolidation. Um, but and we used to have 1,500, so 
Uh, but I we think haven't more had much than lately. that, actually. Uh, yeah, um, I think, I think well, it was around 3,000 at one point because the elementary and high school and high were different were separate and, oh. and before that, the 50s, so, so it was yeah. a totally different system. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of districts in the in the state, um, and that's always an idea. You know, let's consolidate them. But you know, if you're really going to be saving money, um, you're really going to be cutting, shutting buildings, not uh, administrators. I mean, you could combine some administration duties. Many school districts already have with service centers. Um, you know, the Greenbush and and several one where they do all of the HR, they do a lot of the uh, purchasing, all those kinds of things. A lot of cooperative agreements. So. Uh, that's really not uh, that big of a deal. Um, but, you know, if you're going to close buildings, you're really talking about transporting kids a lot farther than where they currently are, particularly in some of our rural districts. Uh, and, and again, if you're in a small town, you know, you lose your school district, you lose your town, you oftentimes lose your county. I mean, we're talking about some counties, you know, I was just visiting with folks in Hamilton County with, near Syracuse on the border. They have 2,600 residents. Um, you know, 1,600 in Syracuse and about 1,000 in the county, and they've got a couple districts. Uh, but again, if you were going to transport them all to Syracuse, you're going to be putting kids on the bus an hour to an hour and a half, and which is a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. Also, many of those districts, the superintendent is also the bus driver, the principal of the high school, the grade school, and the middle school. So, yeah, I think the number now is out of the 286 school districts, about 90 have principal and superintendent roles. So consolidating their own administrative costs within their district versus going to the neighbor saying, hey, come join me, uh, which, by the way, is not very popular no matter what district you're involved in. So, but, Go oh, ahead, Celia. There, there have been several studies on what Kansas could save and um, what the specific costs would be, and I was just debating whether it would be like too rude to sit here and try to find my past stories on, this, on my cell phone. But uh, whoever is interested, I can point you to a really, really long story I wrote about this. So there are, are there savings to be had? Yes. It's all, I mean, it's really a political um, uh, or, or societal conversation about um, what you as Kansans want to invest in because there are trade-offs with everything, with cuts that you make or, or spending that you add. Um, and so one of them is they, you know, they actually calculated how many more thousands of students would be bused, um, et cetera. Um, so, so there are studies that kind of show, and I mean, you could take a look and decide for yourself what is, what is reasonable. And I, I do remember one thing that was interesting from one of those studies, they looked at um, just what, you know, what do we know about maybe like where the peak efficiency is for a school district size? Mm -hmm. And I think that study determined that a few Kansas school districts were, were too big compared to that size, and they recommended, I think, splitting the Wichita district and maybe one of the Johnson County districts as well. Wow. Someone here may remember that study. Uh, that was before my time, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I still remember when we did school closings, and some of those wounds have still not healed uh, on my backside. So, um, you know, so if you think about the, the, the uproar that Wichita endured just with closing some schools in our urban city, I mean, again, multiply that in some of these rural communities as well. So I do think it's, it will take uh, political action. Um, you know, normally what I know the school board association and others have, have always encouraged school districts to work together and, and come together and, and do that as a community uh, or <coughs> groups of communities. And, uh, you know, the state did that back in the 60s where they combined a lot of districts. Um, and again, uh, there's still talk in the in the Capitol hallways about what that did to their community. So I don't know if there's the, the political will to do that. There may be, but and it uh, again, 
I'm not sure if it would have as much uh, you know, in the long run as, as what we think. So. There's not the political will in that state house. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say that. <laughs> well, it is so taboo to even say that word. And I've seen, I've seen legislators like bring it up but use different words to talk about it just to not say consolidation. And then you, you ask them, so are, is your bill about consolidation? No, it's about the realignment of boundaries and this. I mean, it's so, <laughs> no, but I mean, really, it is very, tab it's very, very taboo. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say? Steve? Well, I think the lieutenant governor referenced the Taylor study a little bit earlier in his comments. And in that study, uh, you know, we were found as a state to be extremely efficient in the deployment of education. I believe we were at 96%. So we are doing a lot of things right. We've kind of been forced to, through cut the cut process, to become more efficient. And those practices continue today. I know almost every expenditure is fine-tooth combed for can we do this better, leaner, with less. Um, it, it's just become kind of a way of life for us. And I think it, I think the state study proved that, that that's where we're at. So uh, kind of following on that subject of staffing, um, some people who think that we don't need uh, more money to given to education would say that we're, we're top heavy, uh, too many in, in administrative jobs and not enough actual teachers. What do those numbers look like? Yeah, I don't know that I have the exact numbers, but I know KSB, uh, Kansas Association of School Boards, uh, recently did a study on just that. And it looked at not only school districts, but compared us to other states, as well as compared us to corporate America, the business world, and the number of people that superintendents and, and principals, et cetera, supervise. And what they found was, obviously, the pay was less um, for those in schools, for the number of people that supervised, and we had more responsibilities of supervision. And so in our district, uh, for example, year two that I was in Valley Center, and I've now been there seven years, uh, we had three district administrators, three people that oversaw the entire district, about 400 staff and, and et cetera, full and part time. Uh, we cut that third position, and we've never regained it back. And so literally it is myself and an assistant superintendent, and then share responsibilities over a broad spectrum from construction. I learn stuff all the time about construction, which I never thought I would learn, climbing on roofs, which I never thought I'd learn, over to dealing with HR and those type of things you would expect. And by the way, we educate kids, so that's kind of part of the job too. So certainly, uh, we look at the comparisons. There's a great study out there at KSV. They, they did a nice job on it, just comparing that. Uh, and certainly, there, there are some that believe maybe top heavy, but if you look at our numbers, I believe you would find that principals and district level has actually dropped off. In the so last few years. I have a related uh, audience question here, um, so maybe you want to weigh in on both of these, Lynn, um, uh, regarding uh, administrators' salaries. Could those be equalized to funnel dollars to key teachers, such as STEM areas, to support workforce development? Do you want to fold that into what you were going to say, Lynn? Well, I, you know, I, I think the thing I was going to say was that when you compare the administrative costs of a school district to any other business, uh, the percentage that school districts spend is much less. Um, I was in the private banking world. Um, I was a line loan officer, so I actually was making money for the bank. Um, I had seven supervisors by the time it got to the president, and that was before the board of directors. So I don't know of any school employee that would have seven supervisors above them. Um, it's just, and of course they were, my, the seven above me were paid much more than what I was paid as a loan officer. So, um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, the thing that we have to also consider is that they all, administrative salaries also have to be competitive, uh, just like teacher salaries have to be competitive. 
you know, Wichita is the 85th largest school district in the country. Our superintendent uh, could go to any other large district and make probably at least half again as much as what uh, is the current salary. Uh, I know when, when uh, we hired uh, Dr. Thompson, uh, the Omaha School District was paying almost $100,000 more. And, it was, and it's a smaller school district. Wichita is the largest district to the Canadian border, to Dallas on the south, uh, east of St. Louis and east and west of Denver. So, I mean, we cover a very large area for, for large schools. And it's the same for, for smaller districts as well. They may be one of the highest paid in the community, but again, they have more employees that report to them, more responsibilities, and as, as uh, Corey said, a much broader sense. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any other state agency uh, that, that I have seen, at least, that has a lower administrative cost. I think one of the other things that's important in this is how you define administrative cost. And so there's a national reporting mechanism that every school district in the nation uh, follows. And administrative costs, we think of the superintendent or the principal, but it's anything that happens in the office is considered administrative cost, and that's how it's coded. And so for a normal person just look at it and go, oh my gosh, is that the superintendent's salary? That's not the case. It might be everyone working in the office, uh, secretary, HR, payroll, whomever it is, it is their phones on their desk. It's the paper in the copy machine is considered administrative cost. Anything that happens in the office is considered administrative. And so sometimes people will take just that part of the budget and look at it and go, wow, that's a lot of money for administration. Well, certainly, but try to take out all those factors um, and you'll find that this maybe not just salaries of the, the person in charge of the building or district. I actually was head, just heading down that path I myself um, because it, if you if you take our budget book and a lot of people will will do it it's online and you look at our what is considered general administrative and support expenditures you know that number is a little over 10 percent and oh we're spending way too much we're top heavy of concern obviously becomes our superintendent and some of her leadership team for that line item that's 0.87 percent of our budget and within that budget again there are supplies and the deputy uh, clerk and the there's just a tremendous amount of other expenditures beyond her salary that occupy 0.87% of our budget. And remembering that our budget is $740 million. We don't want to buy generic here. <laughs> we, want, we want the best we can possibly get for our community, for our students. It, it's going to cost a little money to be competitive and not lose them to other opportunities around the country. I have an audience question here, someone who wants to ask. Uh, I am the school liaison for McConnell Air Force Base. How do I explain to parents who move here with the military why they have to pay $100 to $400 in enrollment fees to enroll their students in public school? So that is a great question. And I know that as we have people move in uh, from out of state, that is a common question we get when we have uh, new students. Um, and so part of it, to be quite honest, is the lack of funding in the past, historically. And so the state of Kansas does allow you to recoup some of the funds, uh, whether it be textbook funds, technology funds, or consumables, which would be like magazines, newspaper, worksheets, et cetera, through fees. That's allowed, it's in statute. Can't charge tuition, per se. And so during lean times, which we've seen uh, in recent years, I guarantee if you look at that bar graph, it continues to go up in schools. I promise it's leveling off and swing go back down. So as state funding uh, becomes more adequate and equitable, uh, school districts will make that determination to, to drop that down. I, I think that's an amazing question. I mean, it, it really makes, we have to reflect on the meaning of the word public. Um, but I, I, 
I do want to say a couple things. Like one, with the administration, I, I think it varies district by district. And you know, I can think of, this is not just, th this is also a debate within districts between the teachers and the administrators. I mean, I've covered school districts where the teachers are very happy with the level of administration. And I've covered school districts where they feel like there's too much at the top. So that is a debate within districts and district by district as well. And I've also covered um, uh, situations where teachers have been very offended and upset by administrator raises that they felt more was being put there while um, classrooms still so desperately needed more staffing. So, I mean, that is, it, that is a, big, a big debate. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the, I do think it's, you know, it's worth saying, you've, you've heard a lot about the funding cuts I almost feel like I have to tell you a little bit what some of the lawmakers would say um, on the other side of this debate because they're not here today. And, um, and so I, I know certain people here in this room are going to groan, so I can take it. Um, but, uh, you know, schools, the state's spending on schools has gone up. Um, CAPERS, uh, we have pension obligations. We have building obligations and the state um, takes on a good portion of those building obligations depending on the school district. Um, so sometimes those um, very, very nice, uh, particularly nice school buildings will make headlines like uh, when Chris Kobach was campaigning and he complained about um, the Crystal Palace and I think Shawnee Mission School District and that was not the best example because that one was actually fully funded with local dollars. But, um, but for some, but I think, you know, it. It does, I can understand the person's question where you, when you say, there are a couple ways you can look at that question, like how do you explain that maybe I need to spend $400 to enroll a kid. So some people on one side of the debate would say, why are we spending as much as we're spending on say building and things like that when we don't have those basics down, like ensuring that the enrollment is free. Um, now, obviously things like, I mean, you know, pensions and such, these costs, they just go up. So there are big political questions here, and I'm not trying to weigh in on what to make of them, but I do want to explain, like, it is a very complex picture, so you're going to hear very different things from, you know, two people could give you correct facts that, that talk, that kind of give, like, a very different picture of school spending, because there are times when it's been going both up and down, and it's infuriating as a reporter to try to figure out how to explain it all, but, um, but that is the case, so. Know if that was understandable or not, but <laughs> just, I'll, I'll make one more comment on. I'll make one more comment on the fees. Um, we've had quite a bit of discussion over the past few years um, related to the fee collection because our population is um, highly um, free and reduced. So the ability to even gather them becomes a challenge, let alone assessing them to begin with. So, uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of ours are especially at the high school level. Um, are to defray some of the CTE costs because those programs are expensive. We don't get full funding for CTE, um, and yet we want our students to be um, more career ready uh, as well as those that want to take a college path. So to get them those exposures to like 3D printing and the latest technology, that's extremely expensive. Um, and as we look at those courses that we want our students to, to have exposure to, there are some consumable items in there that 
that we just can't cover with the funding we're receiving. So we try to keep the fees as low as possible where our families can afford them. And they're not um, costed out of it even being an option because that has been a concern that, well, I can't pay the fees for that class, therefore I can't take it. So we've been trying to slowly break down that barrier so that all our students have access to those classes. Susan, I want to uh, kind of get you to expand on that a little bit. Um, I learned that 45%, about 45% of kids in our state qualify for free or reduced lunch. Um, so poverty is an issue that some 237,000 kids are dealing with. Um, how does the proportion of wealth in a city uh, or district mean, how does that determine the, the superiority of the school? Well, I'm going to address at least my part of the question from the funding perspective and then others can weigh in. But certainly that's been the benefit of us returning um, to a, a structured formula that addresses those high need populations where we do receive weighted funding for students that are at risk, for students that are English language learners because there's just a higher need for those populations. They, they have received more services so that they have every opportunity to dream, believe, and achieve, to use our tagline. Um, so you know, that, that would be a, certainly a, a concern uh, to us for any change in that formula structure because our populations are dependent upon that weighted funding piece. Um, and, and I'll let the others weigh in on the other part of that question. Well, I guess I would say that the wealth of the district does not determine the quality of the education. Um, you know, the building might be fancier and might be nicer, but it's really what's going on inside the classroom with that teacher. And, uh, and, and to me, that's the, that's the big issue. Um, sometimes people think that the, the wealthier the district, the better the school is, uh, and they can have some great reputations. Uh, they have a lot more access to, you know, extra money from, you know, parents or grants or those kinds of things. Uh, but it really, uh, you know, my kids went to very urban school districts and all very highly successful now, and uh, that wasn't because they were in the fanciest building at the time, that was before the bond issues even. So, um, so I, I think it's really important that we realize that, that the quality of the classroom is what really determines the quality of the, of the education. But you find parents moving, you know, to Andover or Mays, or like sending their kids to Andover or Mays or wherever else, um, I mean, is well, it? Well, what people don't realize is that, you know, the, and I heard this very early in my school board career, is the number one indicator of a child's success is the mother's education level. Um, if the mother is highly educated, the child is probably going to be much more successful and, and work harder, you know, in, the, in their education times. Uh, I think that research has continued to, to come through. Um, and I think what that, uh, it, it, it does not mean that uh, a, a parent that doesn't have an education can't have successful children. Uh, but it does make the, the classroom, when they're all very similar, uh, educated, uh, you know, all the same needs, uh, it makes it an easier classroom to teach. And so you've got to uh, look at what are the differences and the diversity in that, in that uh, school and, and the teacher, you know, working in that regard. I definitely take your point, but I'm wondering about the, like, property taxes and how that plays into the funding for these schools. Well, the, the formula is set so that you know, there is a local option budget that can be, but there's a limit to how much each school can contribute. So the, the per pupil funding, by the time the state puts their money in and the locals put their money in, is going to be very similar. Now, schools with a higher uh, free and reduced will have some uh, uh, poverty uh, 
monies that are given if you've got special education needs. There's some additional funding for those, but that's based on your, your student population. So when you look at uh, somebody says one district spends X and the other one spends you know X plus, well, that you, what you've got to go into and look at is what is the, um, the, the, the populations of, of that building. You know, I've always said, you know, when you look at the balance sheet and the financial statement of a school district, it's like, as a banker, you know, I looked at the entire thing, including the footnotes. You can't just look at the bottom last number of profit and loss. You've got to look at, okay, uh, what, is it, what is it covering, what is it not? And um, so, you know, most schools are contributing about the same amount um, unless they're putting in their own private uh, uh, foundation money. And I think this is the important part here, because we've talked about base funding and in general. There were really two parts to the last lawsuit. I feel like we're in the Star Wars trilogy, and that fourth one came out, and you thought it was going to be the fourth, and actually was the first. You know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> so I'm going back in time here a little bit, starting with episode one. So when the lawsuit was filed, there was two things that happened. Lawmakers only reduced the base funding, but they also decreased the equalization aid for the lower property taxed uh, districts. And so districts like Wichita, districts like Valley Center, who have fairly, for the number of students both places have, the, the property tax value is not very high. We receive state funding to equalize it, make it more fair, so to speak, on LOB capital bond. And part of the, the, the last lawsuit was both things were lost. We lost equity, we lost that funding, and we lost the amount on the base. So legislators did do a good job. Now, it took three years, but they did do a good job complying with the first part and making it equitable again so that zip code doesn't determine the quality of, of education. And I know in Wichita, when we, are, when, we, when we look at our mill levy, it is our goal to, again, try to continue to stay as stable as we possibly can, knowing that that's important um, to the taxpayer. They, they don't like this up and down. Predictability, knowing what, what's coming at them. Um, when it's gone up and down in the past seven, eight years, it's been because we've lost equalization, we gained equalization. We lost equalization, we gained equalization. So uh, a lot of that up and down has been as a result of, of problems with the, the, the equity piece of the, of the, of the formula. Um, but all that said, you know, Wichita's having great success um, being a, a, an urban high poverty district. We graduate 2,600 seniors. $38 million in scholarships, 113 colleges that they're going to in 27 states. I mean, we are having success even given our challenges. I want to get to a couple of audience questions here. Um, would a school voucher system help educate Kansas kids? So Kansas has a, um, it's not technically a voucher system, but it's very similar. Um, it's, uh, it's designed differently, and I think part of the idea behind that was maybe to get around um, some of the constitutional arguments that have been made about vouchers, although I think that vouchers themselves also have been upheld. I'd have to, I'd have to check that. At any rate, the way Kansas's system work is it works is through tax credits, so you don't actually move money that is in the state coffer from the state coffer to private school scholarship, but um, donors give give money to private school scholarships and then receive a tax credit instead. And the last time I checked, um, there were more than 200 students receiving uh, these scholarships. It may, may have been around 300. I think the, the tax credits were around um, $700,000. Um, it's been a controversial program. 
Um, and uh, I think that the, the lawmakers who, um, who had high hopes for it, who introduced it, and um, feel that it would help um, uh, with the quality of education in Kansas, probably envisioned that it would grow faster than it has, because I think they set a $10 million, um, I think it was a $10 million uh, cap for the tax credits, and it, it hasn't gotten to that. Uh, anywhere near that point right now. So there is, so there is something sim similar to that. I just wanted to point that out. Here's another audience question. Uh, what challenges do classroom teachers and schools face today that are different than 20 years ago? What challenges might surprise us? How much time <laughs> do we have? Um, we have a few we, minutes. Okay. You're, you're good. Okay. So it is changing. Um, quite drastically and the expectation of what we do in schools to help kids is changing as well and for the right reasons and so I'm guessing if you went back you know 80 years ago and you would have told them hey we're gonna transport your kid uh, we're gonna feed them breakfast and lunch if they so choose and we're having an optional breakfast middle of the day if they want it and by the way of after-school program with snacks after they would have laughed and said that is not what schools are gonna be like um, and certainly it, it is becoming more complex and what we're seeing right now uh, particularly as in the area of health, mental health, physical health for kids. And we're seeing it as a society. We all know this. We're having conversations as a society, um, whether it be suicidal ideation or other factors. And if we cannot take care of the basic needs of kids, the idea of them being well-educated becomes much more difficult. And so what we're talking about in, in all districts right now is how do we help the basics of the kid? How do we make sure that they come to school prepared to learn? and they feel safe, and they have the resources necessary regardless of the parent's income. And so I think if you were to talk to a teacher today, beside class size increasing in Kansas, which it has, uh, they would say also is the other things besides instruction is becoming more and more of a responsibility of the teacher to handle. And then on top of that, by the way, you, know, you think back to, to communication um, and the amount of time our teachers spend communicating with various resources and with the parents. I mean, they have their cell phones, they're texting, they're emailing, so the, the job has just become that much more complex, and it's not about going to the classroom, closing the door, educating, opening the door, bye, see you tomorrow. It's much more complex than that today. Well, and I think the other thing I would add is that teachers today are teaching students to prepare them for jobs that have not been created yet, haven't been invented yet. Um, more than ever before in our course of our history. So, um, you know, they really have to teach them how to think and, and uh, be able to respond. So, you know, I think that's one of the biggies, you know, particularly when you think about how do you prepare students for a workforce. You know, these are jobs that haven't been created yet. Um, another audience question here that we can kind of riff off of from that, uh, from that point. Uh, what do schools need for more students to be successful in life and work? I know you want to say money. What? <laughs> money, money, money. But um, it's also partnerships. And so it's a partnership with the business community so that we're listening at all times. What is it that the business community is telling us our kids need when they come out? So I think it's that type of partnership. It's partnership as we're uh, developing in Valley Center with um, a health clinic to help with the mental and physical health of kids, knowing that we can't do it all but can we partner with? So I think partnership is the, the second part of that. And third is flexibility. Understanding that education of yesterday will not work for students of today. And so being flexible, making it look different, um, helping students differently. In the classrooms, if you were to walk in today, I mean, I, it, it's amazing. I mean, this is beautiful behind us, 
but the students in Valley Center could have designed that and printed it and sent it to you because that's what the workforce said, I need kids can do that tomorrow. And so we're now looking at things much differently than we've ever done. Uh, most of our students are graduating with multiple college hours as they walk out. Some walk out with almost an associate's degree when they're a senior. Um, so we are trying to do things to make sure that, that we're responding to the demands of, of our state and, and the business community. I'll echo that. We're, we're, we're all kind of taking a page from that playbook. Um, certainly the work we've done um, with our local aviation community on our aviation pathway was a response to um, a need to provide a, a workforce for the largest um, industry in our community. So uh, the fact that K-12, along with higher ed, along with the business community, were able to sit down at a table and, and have discussions over this is what, this, what we need and this is what this could look like, envisioning that and then making it happen, and that, you know, that's a success story and we need, to, we need more of those. This audience question flows nicely from there. Uh, businesses ask for a well-educated, skilled workforce. Uh, schools are the key to a well-educated workforce. Will they, the businesses, support Governor Kelly's school finance bill? We've been asking, we've been talking, and I do think the vast majority, you know, understand that. Um, you know, businesses, you know, see the benefit of a, of a well-qualified workforce. So. Uh, we've had a number of them come to the legislature and, and tell people that as well. Um, you know, our own chamber has been very uh, supportive of efforts that the school district has done over, over the last few years. Uh, I think they've been a great partner. Uh, but I think, as Corey mentioned, the partnerships are, are really key and consistency. Um, you know, businesses can't be hot and cold uh, with the programs because, you know, we've got a, a new group of kids coming in every year and a, another group coming out from, from the district. So, um, so I hope that's the case. I, um, I mean, we really want to get Kansas back on its feet. You know, uh, settling the um, uh, school funding uh, litigation is key. Uh, expanding Medicaid is key. Uh, saving our kids in DCF, you know, the, the kids that are missing and, and, and quality, those are our priorities. Uh, there's many that we have to work on, but uh, we really want Kansas back uh, to work and, and, and moving in the right direction again. Um, if the bill is passed, does it stipulate how the dollars are spent? How much detail does it go into, if, if it does at all? So the current bill does not. It goes on the base, and it's up to local um, boards to determine where those, those resources are spent. But superintendents across the state are supportive of it, and we've had many discussions. And, and honestly, what it will come down to is lowering class size, expanding opportunities to partnership, and then making sure that our teachers are not paid the 45th in the nation, which is what it is today. Um, I had a, an audience question here about the spending. I'm trying to find real quick. Uh, how, what percentage of the school budget currently goes to transportation, buses? And uh, in Wichita, we're at 4%. Oh, okay. Um, That's one that varies a lot by the school yes, district. It does. I have it to say. Obviously, we have a sizable budget, so for us, transportation is going to be a smaller percentage than a smaller district. Yeah. Okay. 
Did you want to elaborate? No, I'm, you know, because I'm super nerdy. One fascinating thing <laughs> to do. You look like you're going to something. <laughs> it's like all of this data is actually online because we demand so much, you know, as a society. And, um, I mean, understandably, because we spend so much on, on schools, we demand a lot of data. So it's actually online. And um, it is kind of fascinating to poke through some of these spreadsheets and you can see school district by school district who spends more or less on transportation. Um, I visited, um, I think it was the biggest uh, school district, I mean, just size-wise in the state, um, um, out on the border with Colorado, and rode the school bus in the morning. And it was, you know, I think we went um, about a one, almost like a one and a half hour loop, and we picked up eight kids. It was, it was, it was really an experience for me. You know, as the superintendent there told me, he was like, "There's rural, and then there's." Rural, like here we're rural, and so the transportation like really varies a lot, and it, it really it kind of tells a story, and it's it's fascinating. Oh, I, I think that's what makes funding for K twelve so complicated, particularly in Kansas, is that we are so different looking. So what works well in Wichita does not necessarily work as well in rural Kansas, where the you know, it's multiple miles of of fields and you are driving an hour and a half on a bus, whereas you know, we might be in a you know, 10 mile square radius and we're picking up 5,000 kids. So it's just going to, be, uh, it's going to be different district to district, which is why having a one size fits all answer to a lot of these questions is very challenging. Sorry, I kind of wanted to go back to the equity topic for a second. Is that allowed? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, um, just because you know, um, you mentioned earlier that the that the court has signed off on the equity piece, so that um, it won't matter what zip code you live in. And I and I just wanted to like add to that that like legally, that's that's true. Like the court has now decided that what Kansas is doing right now meets um, its constitutional requirement to be fair, but. Um, but I do think like it still matters what zip code you live in. <laughs> that's just that's just the reality. There are some I can look. I've made maps of which school districts are missing the most teachers. You know, I've visited schools where, um, you know, in one elementary school, most of their children were learning English as a second language, um, and they couldn't get enough um, elementary school teachers. Like you said, there's an elementary school teacher shortage now, which blows some people's minds because that was never the case before. And so they were actually, they had you know, long-term substitutes in some of the classrooms, and they would um, switch a certified teacher into one of the elementary classrooms with a substitute. So they would switch for part of the day so that the, the certified teacher could give you know, 45 minutes of solid um, reading instruction by a certified teacher and then switch back. And so like, I think signing off legally you know, that the equity portion, it's a very, it's this, very legal thing, like what does equity mean? But that doesn't mean that that um, that we're not still like that. There still aren't questions that I think are really um, worth exploring, you know, as a journalist and and wondering about. And we have a reporter who's, um, if you really, again, these topics can be a little controversial, or as one of our reporters found recently. But she looked into um, how much support, because you mentioned parental support and you mentioned foundations. Well, I mean, the amount of money that schools can get through their PTO and their foundation can vary a lot. And um, she found schools in Johnson County that were pulling in um, really, really, really uh, quite a lot of money through their PTOs compared to others within the same county. So there, there are still, you know, things worth, worth talking about and wondering and like asking, 
what we actually, you know, maybe um, want in terms of fairness, you know, the, the, the reading classroom without a certified reading teacher being one example. Um, but the court, yes, the court has signed off on the equity piece. So I just wanted to say that. <laughs> in the face of these budget crises, have you seen uh, any kind of an uptick in like homeschooling and private schools and I mean, maybe there's um, so, n well, I don't have homeschooling data. Um, the private school enrollment is going down, and um, I doubt that's just Kansas. Um, nationally, most of our private school enrollment is Catholic schools, and nationally, Catholic schools have really suffered for um, several decades now. I think there were, there were about like five million Catholic school students in the 1960s, and now there are fewer than two million na nationwide. So. Um, I don't think that's been even across the state in Kansas, but part in parts of Kansas, the Catholic schools have continued to lose enrollment. Um, and even with the new kind of tax credit voucher-like system that we have, um, I'm not sure whether that's um, turned turned that tide because because most of the students receiving those scholarships are going to Catholic schools. But no, I don't I don't think that I, I think the enrollment is still going down at private schools. Yeah, the census the the, the national census it actually breaks down by district. The age of you know anticipated number of people that are school aged, and so I've looked at the trend data just in Valley Center, and in the Valley Center school district is about five percent of our population does not attend our schools, give or take. Um, just looking at our numbers, we're closed district boundaries, so I can kind of keep track. So that means five percent are homeschooled, going somewhere in Wichita or another district somewhere nearby, and that number's been steady for for quite some time. So going back to to this bill. Um, if it passes, where is that extra money ultimately coming from? Um, my understanding is that the state uh, income reports have exceeded expectations and the legislature thinks there's enough revenue coming in that uh, it can just fully fund uh, education since the, uh, the tax cuts, for example, were not ultimately passed in Brown Bucks uh, last year. Um, this money isn't coming from a tax increase, is that correct? Correct. We have submitted a balanced budget with no tax increase uh, that uh, resolves the school financing uh, formula for the uh, cost of living increases that the court is asking for, um, funds uh, Medicaid expansion and additional resources for DCF um, and some other areas. Um, it does include uh, some reamortization of, of um, the CAPERS. Uh, which is something we do have to address, if not now, soon, because, and that's not necessarily required, but it also ends with a 9.1% balance. Uh, that 9% uh, ending balance is the largest that's ever been proposed in the last 20 years, uh, and we feel like we really need that because we have no cushion as a state. Uh, part of this uh, budget also pays back what's called the PCIB loan, uh, it's a highly technical term, but uh, again, it's the only thing that we really have from the ratings, the bonding companies, um, and if we don't deal with the bonding issues, local bond issues will go up, you know, tremendously. So that's, that is the one cushion that we'd have left. Um, so we're very cautious uh, with our budget. Um, unfortunately, uh, two bills that have already been passed by the Senate spend about half of the ending balance. And so uh, the legislature hasn't even addressed the rest of their budget. So, uh, so we know, and then again today, we just came out with a, uh, some uh, real concerns in our corrections department that we're gonna have to fund. Uh, there's a lot of damage that we're uncovering and, and we're gonna have to deal with that. So, um, so 
again, the current budget does uh, resolve it. Uh, it does fund it. And again, no, no tax increase at all for that. But we don't know if that's what will pass, of course. And, and the legislature is not, um, I mean, there, there are a lot of critics who really don't want to refinance CAPERS because ultimately that adds a lot to the unfunded liability, does it not? It, it, it does. Um, however, we've added a lot to the unfunded liability by not funding it for the last eight years. Uh, I mean, that's really the problem that we're into. And our real concern on that is we will have to uh, contribute. Currently, our current contribution is $540 million. Next year, it goes to 680, and ultimately, before 2033, it goes to 922 million. Our fear is that when, the, as that bill goes up, um, we will again continue as a legislature to play games and cut that and not fund it, and so we will continue to be kicking that can down the road. Reamortization, while it is not anyone's favorite, um, it will make it much more uh, cost-effective, so that we will be able to make those payments over the next. Uh, number of years and about 35 states do that on a on an annual basis as well again it's not needed for our budget uh but it will uh you know if we don't have that and we do get 190 million dollars in in uh, tax cuts to multinational companies and um to uh, the the extra capers amount uh you know and if there's additional funding uh, you know i think my fear is that they're trying to spend down so that there isn't money for schools which is very similar to what has happened in the past. You know, they, they get to the point, well, we don't have any money left. And uh, um, again, we're not looking to a tax increase. We don't think we need to do that. Um, but, and, and we need, you know, we need to address uh, food sales tax. We need to address property tax, some of those kinds of things. Uh, but again, we're, we're in a very precarious position as our budget. So we've got to really re work at rebuilding this over a number of years. And we, we it took us, uh, you know, eight years to get into this damage, uh, we can't get out of it in one budget. Uh, Celia, you had mentioned that there were uh, the, the, the testimonies uh, in favor of the bill last week, and then were there more today? Yeah, um, I was not there today, um, but... You were um, driving to Wichita. Yeah, I was. Um, but um, I think you had maybe tuned in for a little bit of it and said that. So I, last week, the testimony on this bill started, and it was um, entirely the proponents. And so it was like you heard that clip um, of the Goddard superintendent. Um, so it was, it, it, that's what happened last week. But there were more people than they had time for. So it continued today. And I think you said that it finished. Yeah, I believe they went through all the proponents and they had one opponent, that one person who said that the, the bill is not good. And that, that's actually an organization, um, and that's the Kansas Policy Institute. So they did testify today against it, and then uh, what's next? Well, I think the committee could work the bill and, and could pass out the bill. It could change the bill. Something else could happen. Um, some of you may have seen uh, news stories that the Speaker of the House is supposedly working on a different um, school finance plan that would cut a couple hundred million dollars, but uh, the Speaker says that that report was incorrect. I would say no matter what, you sh we should expect, based on the way the legislature works every year, that there are going to be a few different um, plans coming forward and different options on the table, and, and often the work shows up kind of last minute <laughs> because of the, pro the political process. Um, so, it, so don't make any bets on anything. <laughs> um, so 
Are there measurable goals associated with the increased funding and how will the state be held accountable for the results? This is another audience question. So schools are held accountable in multiple ways, both federal funding as well as state. Um, and so the state board sets specific goals and we're measured against them, whether it be graduation, achievement results, post-secondary success, early childhood success, there's a whole gamut of things we're measured against. And so last year, the conversation happened when additional funding was added by some legislators saying, I need some kind of accountability. And so they said, you know what, I see what you're doing across the street at the state board, that looks right, I like that, let's just include that as an accountability measure. And so what I think you'll see is the same thing you're seeing in Wichita and other places is you're already seeing great education provided in Kansas. You know, when you look at all measures combined, and Kansas Association School Board prepares a report every year, we're typically in the bottom half as far as funding for, for students, but in the top 10 of all states for education. And so I think we're on a good trajectory. I believe with additional resources, you're gonna see that trajectory towards early childhood, towards graduation once again, achievement, those types of factors, you're gonna to continue to see that grow. That's exactly what happened last time. So when funds increased, everything went up, and as soon as funds decreased, you saw flat line or slight dips. And so there is a direct correlation between the two. I think KASB had released some information related to graduation rates that for, for a four-year period when funding was heading um, down, that, that graduation rate basically stalled. I think it may have gone up like 1% between um, 10 and 16. But in the past few years where funds have started to come back, we're already up um, a percent plus 1.6% over 17 to 18. So we're already starting to see some movement back in the right direction. Um, so I think that, that you can be assured that the, the programs that as money comes in, we're gonna continue to funnel that to increasing graduation rates for us, increasing third grade reading proficiency, getting more dual, uh, dual credit programs, concurrent credit, getting more students into those where they can leave our institution with some um, either a certification or more credits uh, for college. I, I think that's I think that's where we all are focusing um, these funds that are coming at us, so that we are, we we can show they they are producing results. Um, I, again, I feel like uh, like I'm just going to be like the voice that like channels some of the um, uh, criticisms that. Um, get voiced in the state house that maybe you know aren't on this panel right now but um, so the so the argument then from from the um, the more conservative um, side of the legislature is that they feel that there's not enough accountability in Kansas schools and that's consistently been an argument from uh, from some people and you know they point to as one example like Kansas doesn't you know pull accreditation from schools um, when schools aren't hitting, like we have really, really aggressive targets, for example, in our federal accountability um, targets, but like we don't, you know, then pull, pull accreditation from schools that aren't missing, uh, that are missing targets. And there are states that, that do that, like Missouri has, has school districts they've pulled accreditation from. So, um, so, you know, some people have argued they wanna see a different type of accreditability. I'm not exactly sure like what that would look like, but anyway. Um, okay, sorry, I lost my, oh, there were a couple more audience questions that I wanted to get to here before we wrap up, but um, one here, Wichita Public Schools has a Pathways program for high school students. Uh, won't this help educate the future workforce? 
Well, absolutely. Uh, there's, a, there's a tremendous, uh, we, t we mentioned it earlier about some of our CTE pathways, health, education, aviation, um, you know, this, getting these students engaged in their career. Um, we're doing um, the individual plans of study as early as sixth grade so that these students can start to explore interests and, and be engaged through that high school experience so that they, they are perhaps matching best with what their interests are. Um, again, if they're college bound, great, but if they are more career bound, that they have a path out of high school into those career paths, whether it's through one of the technical colleges, um, whatever that path may be that they're ready to go. Um, I, I, you know, I'm super excited about like Girls Who Code and those kind of programs where we're really getting into those STEM activities. I, I, think, we're, I think we're making progress on all these fronts. Um, and, and with the ultimate goal to get students as many opportunities as they can to be successful once they leave our doors. And doing it leaner. And doing yeah. it leaner. Well, and I think one of the things we have to realize, CTE, you know, career technical education, um, is and can be very expensive as well. Um, you know, I was recently in a, a CTE class uh, up in the Johnson County area, and there were 40 computers for the class of 40 students. and. Um, and they were showing me the software, and they had a local uh, software developer there. It was the same software that they were using, which is, it's very expensive. Um, and the, the local software company was working with these students to code. Uh, but to invest in that classroom is much more than just a, a second grade or third grade classroom with a, a few AV you know, materials. So we have to realize in, in our uh, career pathways for aviation, uh, some of that equipment is you know, $200,000, and if you train students on the old stuff that the industry has gotten rid of does not help industry uh, put those kids to work once they graduate because they're on old technology. So, so we have to realize that CTE is expensive. I think, um, I don't know about you for Valley Center, uh, Wichita, over half of the high school, uh, high school students were in a CTE class of some kind. And uh, recently at the, the governor's residence, the culinary arts uh, group from Olathe were there and presented an entire meal. And so they were telling me the amount of work that they do. So there's some amazing things going on in our uh, tech ed, and we need to have that. Uh, many of those kids can, can earn very high income. Um, also, many of them can get certificates that they can use to get a higher paying job than to go on to a four-year school. And uh, so I think you know, those are some really exciting things. We need to see that as a, a key part of our overall education strategy. And, and uh, particularly for students that are coming from homes where, um, you know, 21% of our graduates are coming from uh, our first-time high school graduates in their family. They've not been exposed to some of these areas previously. So getting them uh, as much exposure to as many different types of programs as we possibly can afford to do um, is, is good for all our students. And there is a side effect, too, that we're not talking about that's not about K-12, but it's about post-K-12. And we hear those horror stories of people going and getting into major college debt because they think they're going in a pathway and realize that is not the pathway for them. And so we're trying to focus at the, at, the, at the high school level, even starting at the middle school, of let's get you some experience. Let's see if this is really your passion before you dive into that four-year and realize, oof, I'm $100,000 in debt and I have nothing to show for it because it's not why I'm working. There are kids in Valley Center today that are towards the end of their career tech that today probably watched open heart surgery here in Wichita. That's type partnership. We have kids today that may have flown a plane above Wichita, high school kids. And so those are the experiences that are much different through partnerships than what they were of years past. 
But once again, at the end of the year, they'll present to me, here's my passion, here's what I've learned, and I don't even like blood, but I thought I was going to be a nurse. I've changed my mind on that, but this is what I do love. And now they have a trajectory towards what they might go toward post high school. Yeah, I, I got to emphasize, it really is a big change for those of us who are not going to high school right now. Um, it was very, very different when I was in high school. I, it sound, you know, now when I reflect on it, it sounds absolutely insane to me, but no one ever, I don't really remember anyone ever talking to me about what I wanted to do long term, which may be why I ended up majoring in Latin at college. <laughs> <laughs> which, Sorry which, to bring that up. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, I, found, I found my path, I found my path, but it took me a lot longer, I have to say. Um, and I have kind of wondered and thought back as I see high schoolers now learning and exploring so much more earlier on, what, you know, what, what would that experience have been like for myself? I think it's really, I, I think it's really fascinating and, and I want to emphasize, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a major national trend that's really interesting to watch in education right now. All that Latin helped you know how to pronounce words really well, right? <laughs> it helps with your reporting, right? <laughs> I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know what to say. Uh, no regrets. Okay. <laughs> I want to get back to the bill as we wrap up here. Um, Lynn, you were talking a little bit about like the the sort of sneaky ways that it gets opposed, like, oops, we just, we ran out of money, that sort of thing. Is there bipartisan support for this? Uh, you know, I think there is. I think people are anxious to uh, resolve the litigation so that we can move on to other things. Um, you know, I've often said, uh, I heard it often from our previous superintendent, you know, the two things that, that uh, people think are the most important, their money and their kids, that's what they send to school. So that's why it's such a big issue. You know, it's so important to, uh, to people. Uh, but, you know, I think if we can have an honest discussion, and if there's been anything that's been frustrating during my Senate career was um, legislators that didn't want to really understand the financial obligations of a school district, uh, what was going on, what was needed to, to you know. Uh, and, and, and I say that from a standpoint. Last year, one of the things that got added into the, to the funding was a pilot program for mental health services for kids. I think nine school districts are in that pilot. And, you know, we, in many of these school districts, you know, there are kindergartners that need mental health uh, services, uh, which is shocking for, you know, a lot of families. Uh, but if we don't deal with that, um, th their education is really victimized. I mean, they're, they're, they're not going to be educated. Um, and it's going to hurt other kids as well. So, so I think we have more legislators, and some of the most conservative legislators have been the ones championing, championing that. So I'm hoping they start you know, understanding that and they'll sit down and talk about what these costs are and what it takes to, to build a, a budget and, and you know, really have an honest discussion. You know, we, we often throw out the 65% in the classroom. And you know, that formula is really kind of wonky because you know, it, it lets you count football coaches as a, a classroom expense but not librarians. So, you know, that doesn't make sense, you know, to the average, you know, citizen. So we've got to have an honest discussion. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're being stymied by leadership for a little while, but, uh, you know, ultimately they, they do realize we, we need to resolve this. Uh, we, we're, we have a pending court case. Um, let's get on with it. And, and I would just encourage people to make sure they talk to their legislators to encourage them to do that. 
Um, that is kind of how I want to end it. If you, if you all kind of want to come down the row here and, and talk about what you would recommend that parents or people do who are interested in this subject, um, what can we all do to help? Well, I think, you know, they do need to call their legislators. I think they also need to engage with their local school boards. You know, local school boards have some of the most accountability of any elected official. I probably heard more from my uh, local neighbors uh, on, while I served on the school board than I have. Now, I'm only a month into the new gig, but still, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that people were not afraid to talk to your local school board. So I encourage people to, to talk to them, read the budgets, go online with the information that, that's there, and understand the big picture, and, and not just take the, the KPI or, or some of the facts that, that really aren't facts. So, uh, but, but get in touch with your legislator and really visit one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Uh, I think that's really key. Okay, I'm gonna be really self-serving right now. <laughs> um, Please support journalism because um, I, I, I did warn you I was going to be self-serving. Like you need reporters to go to those really long school board meetings and tell you what happened. And I'm afraid that more and more those reporters aren't going to be there. Um, I even wonder whether city halls are going to be covered properly. And um, there's a lot of money, you know, being spent through our local governments and our schools as well. And then also on the state policy piece, journalists, you know, the idea is we're trying to, to write articles that explain what's going on in the state house in a way that connects to your schools and your communities around the state. And so again, having warned you that my comment would be self-serving, <laughs> I do think it's for the greater good. Please support journalism in some form. Thank you. Yes, agree. And so when it comes to the question of uh, how can people get involved, and people ask that question regularly, first off is, is not be afraid to make contact with legislators. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to know the exact bill. It's preferable. But just to say, hey, I support our schools. I know they need additional resources. Second is go tour our school. If you've not been in one for a while and you want uh, come to Valley Center, I'll, I'll set it up for you and come see some of the exciting things that are going on. And also, you'll see some of the challenges. And but before I get off here, I, I have to say something. I just I think it's remarkable that the Lieutenant Governor of Kansas will come to a venue like this and spend time having a casual conversation. That's not typical for politicians. So thank you, Lieutenant Governor. And, and I would echo the invitation to come and visit our schools. I think um, particularly in a in Wichita where we are such a large, diverse school district. There is a lot of misconception about how we operate, and, and some of our challenges do get um, maybe blown a little bit out of proportion um, just by word of mouth. So come and see the work that we do. Visit our schools. Talk to our principals. Talk to our teachers and find out just some, really some of the wonderful work that we're doing on a daily basis. You'd be very surprised. Thank you. Let's have a huge round of applause for our panel. That was an excellent conversation, you guys. Thank you so much for coming out. And I hope you all will come to our next Engage ICT conversation, which we have March 12th uh, here at Roxy's. Uh, we will be wrapping up our sort of legislative session mini-series that uh, next month. So um, it will be another, uh, another interesting topic uh, on issues that concern you. So please join us for that. Thank you again for coming out tonight, and have a wonderful evening. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineers are Torin Anderson and Mark Statzer. Beth Golay is the producer, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.